Welcome to the Wednesday Bible Study. We are so thankful that you are here, men. Welcome in the room. Thank you for your your effort getting here today, and for those of you that are watching and or listening uh, all over the world. We thank you for being here with us today. It is the Wednesday Bible Study. We are in the book of, of, of Revelation. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 11 today. We won't get through all of it, but we're going to go one through 14. So uh, Adler, make a note of that too, because I know I forgot to give you that. Uh, 1 through 14 today out of out of Revelation 11, and trust me, it'll be all, all we'll need to, to fill up this hour together. A couple of things I want you to know, if you're new to the Bible study and you want to go back and get archives, you can, either audio only, or you can do the videos. Uh, go to themanchurch.com. You see that uh, right behind me, themanchurch.com. You'll see a media button. Click on that. It'll drop down, and all it's going to ask you is you want to listen to them or you want to watch them, and then you can just scroll through the archives to find either uh, sessions of the Revelation that you missed, or you can go back and get Bible studies and different books of the Bible and and books that we have done uh, over the the last few years. So it is themanchurch.com that brings you this Bible study. Themanchurch.com is a hub for men's discipleship, and we have a men's discipleship strategy which features speakers going out, uh, at men's services or, or maybe conferences, and that's the high challenge, which men's ministry has done really pretty well uh, for a long time. But what was missing uh, is, 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 a, is a better job. We could have done a better job on equipping men or discipling men. So we tried to provide those resources. We have four 40-week curricula uh, that you can. Our new one just came out. It is called Impact. Uh, so uh, I had somebody today uh, tell me, "Is be disciples? Is that the end?" And I said, "Oh no, uh, we're ready with the next one. Impact is is the fourth one, uh, and uh, and it is available now. Uh, but there's four uh, four total, uh, and they're they're forty weeks. Uh, every five weeks, you talk about a new topic. Over eight weeks, you pick out from the year. Uh, it has me doing video for about uh, ten to fifteen minutes, kicking off the small group, and then you have facilitators with the study guides that our writers put together, uh, and then the the facilitator takes the group through that study guide. So you can get those at themanchurch.com. And if you want us to come out, uh, we have a group of teachers and speakers that will be glad to come to your services and events as well. Uh, on that note, uh, Man Church happening this week in West Mobile. Uh, that's Alabama, West Mobile Baptist Church, Rich Wingo. Now, they're doing a breakfast. It can be breakfasts. It can be wild game feast. It can just be services um, or whatever. Uh, but uh, it's a breakfast this Saturday morning uh, down in Mobile, Alabama. If you're in that area, you want to be there, West Mobile Baptist Church, he'll give a, a message, and then that'll be followed by an opportunity to get into the curriculum, just, just what we talked about. Another one coming up down around Tampa, Florida, Webster, Florida, Brian Gunn. Another one of our teachers and, and speakers, he'll be there at First Baptist Church, Webster, Florida, uh, and that's on June the 11th. So make a point to be there. They're going through the curriculum. This will be their next gathering. I'll be heading off to a conference called the Gridiron Men's Conference coming up on Father's Day weekend. And I'll be speaking uh, in Huntsville, Alabama. Mike Pence, David Jeremiah, Robert Jeffries will be there. Uh, also, Phil Waldrop, uh, his ministry, of course, puts on the Gridiron Conference. Uh, and I will look forward to being there with all of you that are traveling to Huntsville uh, for the Friday night and half a day Saturday of Father's Day weekend, June 16th and 17th. On June the 18th at my home church in Birmingham, Alabama, Valleydale Church, it's Brian Gunn again. Uh, that is our annual men's breakfast, our next gathering. And Brian will bring the message, and then we'll go right back into the curriculum uh, and the opportunities there at Valleydale Church. And then I'll be headed uh, down to Montgomery, Alabama on July the 6th for their next man church, and I'll be at Landmark Church 
in Montgomery. You can find all those by going to themanchurch.com. Speaking of Father's Day, a great gift from us. It's a new resource. This is a 31-day devotional. It's a personal resource for individual men. Uh, really, this could be for women, too, but a lot of the examples and commentary are designed for men, uh, and it's called Transform. If you'd like a signed copy from me to your dad, uh, just go to themanchurch.com up to June 7th. You can get a signed copy. You'll see the banner right at the top of the page when you hit the store. Click that banner. And then uh, there'll be a signed copy going to your dad or to you to give to your dad, okay? Uh, So let's open up in a word of prayer, and let's jump right into the Revelation chapter 11. Uh, Lord, thank you for today. Uh, We need the power of your Holy Spirit to to guide us through what what at times can be, um, you know, things that we can't even wrap our minds around. Uh, But uh, you told John to tell us. You inspired him. You gave him very specific instructions. And now you inspiring us through his documentation of these future events. Help us, Lord, to take away and apply it, not, not just you know the, the, what we're needing to hear about the future, but obviously there's something here we need to apply to the now. And, and be sure that we take that away, Lord. You convict our hearts and refine us and mold us into the men that only you can make us. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so we go to the Revelation chapter 11. Uh, throughout human history, God has repeatedly sent prophets and preachers to his, his, his people, the prophets of the Old Testament. And, that, and then when, when, the, when the church age was born, as soon as Peter gets up at Pentecost, you know, from, from that day to, to where we are right now, there's been uh, preachers and, and speakers and teachers uh, talking uh, to the church and the church going out talking to the world uh, over and over. People, uh, unfortunately, uh, have rejected the call to repentance. Praise God, some have not. But the majority of the people, based on what Jesus tells us, will reject the call to repent. And, and why is that? Well, mostly because we are arrogant as, as human beings. Um, our problem right out of the gate uh, is we were convinced by the adversary in the garden that having God to decide what was right and wrong, we didn't trust him. We wanted to decide it for ourselves. So what does repentance require us to do? Admit that we're wrong. When's the last time you had somebody admit to you they were wrong? It just doesn't happen a whole lot. It's not something we're comfortable with. So a lot of people reject repentance because they think, why do I need to repent because I don't think I'm all that bad? Well, compared to other people, we probably, in any individual case, can make a case I'm not as bad as so-and-so. A lot of you are very comfortable that you're not as bad as me. But I think about people like Job that I told you about that was blameless and upright by compared to other people. When he encountered God in that intimacy of his suffering, he said, I, I despise myself. Compared to him, I'm actually quite sinful. And, and, and I will say that, uh, that, that even Charles, I mean, you think of people like Spurgeon. I don't think any of us here uh, want to say that Spurgeon was not an upstanding man. You know what Spurgeon said when somebody asked him how he felt about the people that were against him? and we're saying horrible things about him, he said, I'm just glad they don't know how bad I really am. You know, so so let me just break it to all of us, me included. You need to repent. Uh, You you, you are in need of of redemption, or or if you've already been redeemed, you, you and I are in need of continued sanctification. Okay? None of us have arrived, and none of us, as Adrian Rogers said, are going to strut into heaven. Uh, so when we look at the, the prophets, you go all the way back to something like like Second Kings, 
Second Kings seventeen thirteen says this, and you can write that down if you want to go back and get it. Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments. Here's God speaking through prophets. My statutes according to all the law which I have commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants and the prophets. So how does God get his message to us? Now, well, in the Old Testament, it was through the prophets. Then he came as a human being incarnate and says, now I speak directly on behalf of the Father. And then when he went, he said, now it's back to the church. Okay, And that's how God makes his petition. What, what does Paul tell us? We're his ambassadors. And, and so, but when you look at Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and it goes on and on, then you look to the New Testament, Jesus himself, he comes on, he comes on the scene in Luke 13, and what does he say? Repent or perish. Okay, so then we get to, uh, we get to the Pentecost. Uh, Peter finally gets it right. He's got the Holy Spirit now. And what does he say? Repent. Uh, we get to Matthew 23, 37, Jesus crying over Jerusalem. And, and what does he say? You have stoned and killed everybody. My fa- I'm paraphrasing. This is my commentary. You have stoned and killed everybody that my father sent you to tell you about me, and now you're rejecting me. And he said, oh, how I longed to gather you together and protect you from my father's wrath as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You won't repent. You, re- you, you can't believe that I'm calling you to repent because you keep telling me that you're the sons of Abraham. What was that? Arrogance. You're telling us we need to repent. We keep the law. We do all this. And, of course, we do our own version of that. Well, in the future, during Earth's darkest hour, God is going to raise up two exceptional and powerful preachers. Uh, they're going to proclaim the gospel in the last three and a half years uh, of the, the tribulation or what Jesus said. And what? where did Jesus say this, guys? Matthew 24. He said the great tribulation, uh, and that's in Matthew 24, 21, if you want to make a note of that. Uh, and this will be, and this is important, this will be God's final expression of his grace offered to those who repent and believe. They will also preach, as we should, showing that balance again. They do preach his, his grace, and they do preach for repentance, but what else do they preach? His judgment and his, and his wrath that's coming on this wicked world. Let me tell you, the people that still don't repent, I mean, it, 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 God has, has tried and tried and tried, and he is giving everyone, especially his people, the Hebrews, their best shot. And, of course, this is going to fulfill something else, Matthew 24, 14. Uh, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. Then, Jesus said, the end will come. Jesus tells us about this very thing we're going to study today. And and so you start thinking about, you know, I remember the first time someone ever told me this. Now, I don't know what's happening to the grid during all the judgments that are coming down, but apparently something survives. Because I remember the first time that CNN went on the air. And I remember the first person that said to me, now the two witnesses could be seen and heard all over the world. Because they're going to do it in Jerusalem. And you're going to see that that's crystal clear, okay? Because John tells us it's Jerusalem, and and but but how can the whole world see it? Well, now through satellites and streaming and 
all these things, uh, the whole world can watch anything. Uh, so the stage is set for the whole world to see something that's happening in Jerusalem where there was a long time that wasn't even possible. But Jesus tells us that these, these two will preach to the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and once that's over, he said, then the end will come. And that means the final. So before introducing these two faithful witnesses, John records this, these are again my, my commentary here, a cool incident uh, in which he himself is going to take part, but this is going to set the stage for the arrival of the two preachers. So let's look at that in verses 1 and 2a. So let's read those. Then I was given, this is John, you see now it's a new, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God, underline that, and the altar, underline that, and those who worship there. 2A, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and now B, and they will trample the holy holy city for 42 months. You know, when you first read something, you're like, what in the world are we talking about here? So, so John is, is once again, you know, John views things, but then like last week, there comes a time when John's called to participate in the vision. And here, this is happening again. He's in an active role again. He's he's given. We think most people believe that he's given this this instruction, and he's also given this rod by the angel that he just talked about in Revelation ten, uh, and it's it's a measuring rod like a and it says like a staff. Now the word here um, is 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 kalamos in the Greek, which is a measuring rod. Now, believe it or not, I didn't know this. So in commentaries that I looked, and, and they all agreed all agreed that in the, the times that John is familiar with, this is a, a kind of a reed-like plant that grew in the Jordan Valley. The thing would grow to be 15, 20 feet tall, and, and it had a, the, the stalk was hollow. It was very lightweight, but it still was very rigid, and people would make staffs and, and walking sticks uh, out of it. Uh, but they were often used as measuring rods. They would take this and go. Well, here's it was. It was about three of these, okay. And it was something that grew, and that's something John would be familiar with. That's why he's using that word. As a matter, if you want to, matter if you want to cross reference this this reed that was used as a measuring rod, you can go back to the Old Testament, go to Ezekiel, and you'll see in chapter forty, verse three. If you want to make a note of that, and then go to chapter forty three in Ezekiel and look at verse seventeen. And you will see this same thing being talked about. An angel used such a rod to measure the millennial temple uh, as Ezekiel was seeing it. So John was told to measure the temple of God, including the altar and those who worshiped in it. Now, this was not necessarily meaning a a physical measurement of the size of it. That's really not what what is being talked about here. It's not a physical measurement. Uh, You know, Old Testament the Old Testament talked about this that said things are marked and measured for destruction. You know, God has marked you for destruction. He has measured you and found you, uh, you know, that you, are, that you are wanting. Remember that? So, uh, so here's some places that took place if you want to jot, jot these down. The one I just mentioned, 2 Samuel 8, verse 2, 2 Kings 21, 13, Isaiah 28, 17, Lamentations 2.8, Amos talks about this in chapter 7, uh, verse 7 through 9, and also in verse 17. 
So that's where you're going to see all these prophets saying God has measured you and found you wanting, or he has marked you for destruction, meaning it's not always a physical measurement. Well, in this case, what John is talking about here to kind of understand, it's better understood here that this is signifying ownership. It's actually something good. It, it, it's saying this is, this is God's possession, and it has to be good because uh, in verse 2, John is told not to measure the parts that really represent evil. Don't measure that. That, that 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 I'm going. And I'll tell you what's happening here. We're going to get there. That's different out there. I'm talking about in here. This is this is my possession, and really, if you want to look, John is getting really good news from God about what? Well, about Israel. What God is telling John that he's measuring off the Hebrews, Israel, and they're going to get a special protection from God for what's what's coming. Okay. Now they're still going to be called to repentance, but they're going to receive some perfection, I mean protection that the Gentiles don't get. So if you want to really look at time, you go back to the Old Testament and he's dealing with the Hebrews and he's dealing with his people, they reject Jesus and then the wild branch uh, you know that is that is uh, you know brought in, this grafted in now becomes the Gentiles. Now this is important for those of you that, and and I know there's not agreement even in this room, and that's okay. It's 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 not a it's not a salvation issue, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib for the church. That's not a salvation issue. Okay, so we're we're not going to spend time arguing about that. But I will say that, and you'll see it in a minute. Paul is very clear that before the church there was a distinction between Hebrew and Gentile. After the church, apparently. There's a distinction between the Hebrew and the Gentile. But in the church age, there's no distinction. That, that's right out of Colossians 3. So, so make a note of that. That's important as we kind of work through this, okay? I don't want to get too much into weeds, but t- make a note of that. And if you'd like to see Paul talking about what John is talking about, go to Romans 11, verse 2. It says, God has not resurrected his people from, from whom he foreknew, he is preserving them until the future day when the believing remnant of the nation will be saved. He's preserving them. There's a remnant that is they're, they're going to repent even in these final days. We know many already have through the things we've already seen. So uh, you can also read more about that by going to verse 5. So Romans 11, 4 and 5. You know who else talked about this? Zechariah. Uh, uh, go go to uh, 12, 10, 13, 1, and, verse, and also verses 8 and 9 out of chapter 13. By the way, and stop. Last week, my scribble sometimes is hard to read. I confused a lot of people with a reference that I did in Thessalonians. I meant Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. For some reason, I guess I was getting tired when I was doing the Bible study. I looked down and just saw a seven, and I didn't know what it was. And I said, Thessalonians something seven. And people were like, there's not seven chapters. And you're right, there's not. I went and found it. It was actually chapter four in 1 Thessalonians, verses 16 and 17. So I made a mistake last week on that, and somebody emailed me on that. So make make a note. So, But the, the, the temple here does not refer to the entire temple. 
The word here in the Greek here, naos, N-A-O-S, this word means the inner temple, that, that holy place. If y'all, are y'all familiar with the holy of holies? This is what John's being told to measure. That's God's possession. Uh, and then he says the altar, which is a, a brazen altar, it's located outside the inner sanctuary in the courtyard. And this is where the those, he says, those who worship would have gathered. People, people were never able to enter into the holy place of the holy of holies. That was only for the for for the for the rabbis. That was only for them. That you you could not go there. The closest you could get was the altar if you were not marked to go back there and represent the people before God. So the worshipers likely represent this remnant that I'm talking about. They are alive during the tribulation. Who are who are repenting and they are worshiping God and God's going to kind of protect them from from this from from the the Antichrist and who's going to go crazy here. John sees the temple uh, that the that the Romans destroyed and he's being told by God, oh, the temple's going to be rebuilt. Keep in mind when John's seeing this, the temple's gone, and so here's God saying, oh, we're going to get the temple back. Don't worry about that. It's going to be rebuilt, and I'm marking it as mine, and I'm marking this this inner part that belongs to me. Now, out there in the courtyard, all hell's going to be breaking loose, okay, but not in here. So the new temple likely will be built in the, in the first half of the tribulation under the protection of, of all people, the Antichrist. His patronage and his protection are going to allow the temple to be rebuilt. Now, we all know there's a lot going on with this right now. The Dome of the Rock's in the way. Then there's people that say, no, that's not the real location. They actually could do it just a little over to the, the side there. I've been there. I've heard all this. And we have people right now that keep trying to lay the cornerstone to rebuild it. There's a group, and they run, they run around. And sit, they're in like a pickup truck. And, they, and, and, they, they, and they've got the cornerstone, and they try to drop it down. Then everybody breaks up, and all the fights break out. Uh, so And, hey, they, they, they're trying to bring in the heifers. They're trying to get the red heifer in there. They, they're trying to get it done right now. But, but it's not going to be done until God allows it to be done. So uh, the temple will actually reawaken worship with many of the Hebrews. So that's one thing the Antichrist is going to miscalculate. He wants the temple back so he can be worshipped, okay? But what he's going to miscalculate is when he builds it back, some of the Hebrews will go, hey, this temple's back. And they're going to start having be more devotion. Look, I've been there. I've been to Israel. I've had these conversations. And that, and they're really. I don't mean any disrespect if you're if you're watching this and, and you're Jewish, you're Hebrew, but I've been there, and 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 because they, you know, I don't know if you've ever been around Israelis. They don't mind debate. They love to debate. They make New Yorkers look like they get along. I mean, they, they how about they don't mind having a debate. Doesn't bother them. They don't get offended, you know. And so I was talking with a guy who was engaging me about Jesus being the Messiah, and I said, Well, here's my only deal. Where are you doing the sacrifices? Silence. He said, well, we try to do good things to account for that Yom Kippur and all that. Said, yeah, that's, that's, not, that's not the sacrificial system. You'd, all I see is a wall. See a lot of people cramming stuff in the wall and praying, but went there today. That was, that was really pretty powerful. You got no temple. I just want to know how you're where, – where, and I said – I can't remember the Hebrew word, but Herbie uh, taught me the Hebrew word to say for the sacrifice, and I can't remember it now. And, and I kept saying, that, where is it? And they don't have an answer. They really have no answer to how are they being atoned for sin if the temple's not here and the sacrificial system has stopped. How are y'all? How are y'all being redeemed? And then 
just like in this, he, he looked at me and he said, if Jesus, this Jesus, if he puts his foot on that Mount of Olives and declares himself as Messiah on that day, I will be redeemed. I said, yeah, but what if you die before then? He basically was to make it a deal. He'd try to handle the tribulation like some of these Hebrews are doing. But what if you die before then? What's going to happen then? And he had no answer. And uh, and so, so picture if you were still alive and you're Hebrew and that temple comes back. You know what you think? Oh, it's been resolved. So they're going to start trying to go back to the sacrificial system and all that. Well, the Antichrist is not going to like that. Okay, that that's he's going to be jealous that the worship is not of him, uh, and uh, and and they're going to also what they'll also reawaken their interest in Messiah. That's going to be reawakened as well, uh, and 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 they realize the sacrificial system cannot atone for their sins. The Antichrist will become insanely jealous. He'll halt all worship. He'll desecrate the temple by placing himself there. This is in Daniel 9, 27. Guess where else it is? Matthew 24. Um, uh, Matthew 24, uh, verse 15. And he'll set himself up as the only acceptable object of worship. Uh, this will also be mentioned uh, in Revelation 13. We'll actually see this moment, verse 15. And also, this is also talked about in, and I'm going to try to get it right this week, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. So the measuring is symbolic of the marking out of the believing Hebrews, the remnant that God will spare from judgment. Guess who else talks about that? Zechariah's back. Um, um, go to uh, 13 and uh, 8 through 9. Uh, so he talks about this as well. Now John is told to leave out the court which is outside the temple and not measure it. Well, remember, if you go back through biblical history, guess who were allowed in the courtyard but no further? The Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, courtyard's best you could do. Okay? And if you remember, write this down, Acts 21, 28, and 29, Acts 21, 28, 29, Gentiles were never allowed to go beyond that point. Paul gets arrested and gets put in jail. Why? You brought Gentiles beyond the point. That was one of the accusations they made against him because he's declaring there is no Jew or Gentile anymore, and they're saying, well, yeah, there is. According to us, there is. And Paul brought Gentiles past the courtyard, and they put him in jail. So that's how serious they were about that. This very charge was aimed at Paul. Uh, So God redeems Gentiles, no doubt, and and he will continue to do that in the tribulation, no doubt about that during this age. But he will reject those who have united with Satan— and the beast, and, 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 and are oppressing his covenant people in Israel. The problem right now is most of the Gentiles, when we get this far along, they've all gone with Satan, they've all gone with the, with the beast, and they're now back after God's chosen people, and God's gonna, God is not going to offer them the same protection that he has this remnant that he knows is repenting of his covenant people, and that's the Hebrews. Look, I'm so glad that we were the wild branch grafted in Hebrews in the room, Hebrews out there. I mean, I mean, Gentiles look, I'm glad we were, but if you think that we have the same relationship with God as, as the, as Israel, we don't. Okay. I mean, now are we an equal standing in Jesus? Absolutely. But when you talk about world history and you talk about nations 
If you think the United States of America is in the same standing with God as Israel, you don't know anything, okay? Because this is going to be the flashpoint of everything. I, I remember when I went to Israel, I, I thought to myself, with no exaggeration, I now stand in the center of the universe, okay? And uh, and so he there that there is a covenant with them that uh, that that we uh, of course praise God under the new covenant we were in, but that old covenant. There's a relationship he has with his chosen people that is unlike any other relationship uh, in, in as far as nations go. So this, this vision between the Jews and the Gentiles, back to what I said a minute ago, this is another marker. Look, I'm not, I don't know. Okay, I'm just telling you, though, some of these things. This is another marker that the church is gone because in the church he wouldn't be making this kind of distinction. He doesn't. We're told by Paul that in the church there is no Jew or Gentile. There is no Scythian or Greek. There is no slave or free. Everybody's the same. No distinction. But here he is in the Great Tribulation making a distinction. It kind of goes back to you know when the elders tell John, these here are those that, uh, that, you know, that, that, that were, were martyred during the Tribulation. They repented during the Tribulation. If that was the church, he wouldn't have to make that distinction. So you, you have to consider these things. And I've, I've read some of the, the people that, that believe otherwise, and I certainly respect that. And I'm not coming down one way or the other. I will tell you what I personally believe, and I've told you that. But this is another marker that seems to suggest that the church isn't here because there's a distinction that's come back. Just a note to make uh, between Jew and Gentile. And we know in Colossians 3.11, the church doesn't have that distinction. So I'd make a note of that. So... We're going to now say that, that why is there no measurement here? Why, why is there no measurement? Well, the three and a half years that are cranking right now, the Antichrist and those with him will attempt to trample God's people in a way that will exceed any occupation or any oppression from the past by the Assyrians, by Babylonians, by Medo-Persians, by Greeks, by Romans, by Turks, even by the British. None of those will compare to the persecution coming on the Hebrews by the Antichrist and the Gentiles with him. It'll be like nothing they've ever experienced before, including Hitler. Okay, that's that. That's how much you're gonna how, how you're gonna see this. And God is saying here He's gonna shelter many of the Israelis in a, in place. He has prepared for them this place in the wilderness. We'll see that in chapter twelve. Verse 6 in the Revelation, but guess where else we've already heard it? Where? Matthew 24. Jesus talks about this. He warns them, you're going to need a place to take cover. And this is the point, this is what John's seeing in 11. You're going to need a place to take cover. Jesus talks about this to his disciples in chapter 24, verses 15 through 20. I hope y'all have read 24 by now. If not, I'm going to start getting mad about it. All right, so raise your hand if you've read it. Guys, how can you not? How can every hand not go up? How many times have I said this? Okay, so so anyway, uh, and those who do not heed this warning will face terrible persecution from the forces of the Antichrist. God will bring salvation to Israel through two powerful preachers. Now, we we, we go to Zechariah. We seem to see that it, it, it seems to say in in uh, in thirteen, eight and seven that these two preachers that we're about to be introduced to will be instrumental in God saving a third of Israel that remains. Now, 
Back to not wanting to repent. Two-thirds are not going to repent. But a third, thats it. you see him measure these out, a third are going to repent. Two-thirds will not. So here come the messengers. Let's start in verses 3 through 14. 3 through 14. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt. We'll explain all this. Where the Lord was crucified. Underline, underline where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days uh, from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze upon their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God enters them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God of heaven, to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Wow. So let's talk about 3A right out of the gate. Their duty will, 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 will grant. They've been granted authority. Uh, and we, we, this authority has been granted from God, the Father, or from Jesus. It's one of the two. They will have great authority. They are not identified, okay? Uh, and, and, and where they're getting the authority from is not clearly identified, but everyone agrees this has come from God because only he could grant it. It says witnesses. That's plural. That means that, that, that this, this word witnesses, there is two, and we'll talk about why there's two. But but this word is the it, a lot. Of this the word that's being used here can also in English be uh, be be the one we use for martyr. It's a form of martis and in English martyr. This is always used to describe persons uh, that uh, that will of course be martyred for their devotion to God and Christ. So any idea that this isn't two people kind of goes out the door because this word that's being used about them witnesses or martyrs, is never used for anything but people. So this thing of they represent a movement of some kind, that doesn't really hold up because the word that's being used here said these are two people. They're, they're not a movement. They're not an error. They're not an age, anything like that. So anyway, and, and in the Old Testament, we know what? The Bible always requires the testimony of two people or more to confirm a fact or verify the truth. So he's not going to send one witness when he's established that you need two witnesses. So there's there's going to be two. They are to prophesy. We see that uh, to speak. Uh, that means to speak forth in the New Testament. The word that's being used here. They're not here to predict the future. 
You know, we talk about that now. Do we have any modern-day prophets? Well, we have people that that preach like a, a prophetic word, meaning not, I'm going to tell you the future, but, hey, a call to repentance. You know, that still is a, prof- a prophetic word saying, hey, judgment is coming, and, and you need to repent. You know, sometimes you have that kind of message. Other times you have a life application message or a gospel message. Uh, so there's still prophetic messages, calls to repentance, uh, but— um, but keep in mind that they they are you know talking about uh, the law and the prophets and and when you think about who the these people are you, you there's a lot of debate on who they are and people go back and forth on who they think they are and and all this but there's a couple of things that I, that I think um, um, give us a lot of indication of who they are and and um, and and one of those is that uh, many people believe that this is Moses and Elijah. Uh, and there's there's a there's a lot uh, to to support that, um, you know. First of all, you know they they seem to rep- represent the law and the prophets. Uh, we see Elijah and we see Moses where at the transfiguration of Jesus, encouraging him to finish the job of redemption and almost giving us a, a pre look at this. Uh, they both Moses and Elijah they both left the earth in unusual ways. Elijah never died. He was taken in a chariot right into heaven. God supernaturally buried Moses in a secret location. None of this is speculation. All of this is true. However, I will say this. The Bible does not tell us it's Elijah and Moses. But these things about them are true. So that's why most people believe that they will be Elijah and Moses. But we cannot say that for a fact because the Bible doesn't say that. But... Those are all some reasons that, that that it could be them. So uh, so we know that um, that they are here to to preach, and we know what they're doing. So when you look at what it says here about them, they will prophesy for three and a half years. They'll be clothed clothed in sackcloth. Now, why sackcloth? Well, this represents what repentance. It represents mourning. It represents grief throughout the Bible. So these two witnesses would be dressed because the destruction is something to mourn over. Those that are dying and, and, and going to hell, that brings grief. Uh, the, the fact that God's having to do this, but again, that sackcloth always represents that, uh, that they are also repenting. So this, this is going to be a message of repentance. Have y'all gotten the, the, the clear message now that throughout Scripture God's calling us to repentance? Has everybody got this? I don't know why we neglect that so much these days, but, but it, it really is a theme uh, and the only way for me to understand it is to learn all the things about God, as we said. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So when you look at this, when you look at Scripture, remember that olive oil was used many times for these lamps to be lit. And what he's saying is, here's two olive trees that are that are completely and continually connected. These lifestyles, lampstands and olive trees are one. Jesus says, when you connect to the vine, my father is the vine dresser, then my power will flow through all that abide in me. And I, Jesus, will produce much fruit and it will glorify my father. And he will see that because of what I'm producing in you, it'll prove to him, you really are my disciples. Same image here, but it's an olive tree because it's going to produce oil, which produces light to all the darkness that's going on. But this is a symbol that the power of the Holy Spirit through these two will be continuous. It won't cut on and cut off. They have the Holy Spirit flowing through them continuously. And that's what that is representing. 
So now let's go to, to verse 5 and 6, the power that they've been given. They will fearlessly proclaim God's judgment, wrath, vengeance, and the need for repentance. Now, they will be hated. Take a note of that. If you decide to stand boldly for God in this wicked world, Jesus told you, you're hearing it again here, the world will, not they might, they will hate you. They'll hate you for it. Now, Jesus reminds you that and me that they really hate him, uh, but they will be hated. Many uh, will, will try to cause them harm because they'll hate it so much, and fire is going to come from their mouth, and they will kill all who oppose them until God is ready for their preaching to end. You know, what, what, what did Jesus tell us? He said, hey, my church, you can say what you want to about the church. You can have all these things of thinking my church is in trouble. My church not in trouble. Now, individual people in the church might be in trouble, but the church is not in trouble. Around the world right now, I promise you, the church is not in trouble. And Jesus says, my church will say, the, the gates of hell will not stand against it. And remember we talked about, about gates? That's, that's for protection. That's not an offensive weapon from Satan. That's the church knocking down the gates of hell and delivering people out of the wrath of Satan. And nobody's going to stop us. Now, will, will some of us be killed? Yes. Have some of us been killed? Yes. But what did Paul say about that? To live as Christ, to die as gain, right here on the shirt. Okay, so uh, so all they did is just 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 end end all the imperfection and put us in perfection. What are we afraid of? And 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 persecution of the church has 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 always been here, and it will always be here. And if you haven't faced it, you will. But keep in mind, guess when they're going to stop preaching? When God stops it. Nobody could. And how about this? Don't make a move to go get them yet, because the fire comes out of their mouth and they'll kill you. Okay, death for those who try to come up with their own. Make a note of this. Write this down. Death is coming to those that will not abide by God's timeline, and they try to make their own. We're going to stop them. No, you're not. Not until God does. I want this to happen. It's not going to happen until God allows it to happen. I want my own timeline. Well, you'll probably be killed. That's because you're trying to be God now, and that's always a bad place to be. I've been there. I've tried it. Uh, so, uh, so they will be hated. Death for those who try to come after them with their own timeline. They have power, apparently, over the weather and ecological disasters because they're bringing that down. All right, so, so they, they've got all that given to them in 5 and 6. Now we get to 7 through 10, and this is going to be their death. Okay, Now, they are protected by God until they have finished their testimony. So the beast is going to show up uh, to make war. Uh, and the beast now, from this point, this is his first mention in the Revelation. We're going to get him 35 more times before we're done, okay? Three times the beast is mentioned. He's going to come up out of the abyss. We've talked about the abyss. Empowered by Satan. This is not Satan. Revelation 13 will make that clear. This is likely a world ruler, uh, the Antichrist. Uh, though a man, he has been demonically energized by the demons in the abyss, the world will love, love, love that he kills the two witnesses. They're going to love it. And it says that right here. Look at, look at this in verse 7. And when, and when they had finished their testimony, and you better underline that, when were they allowed to be martyred? When they were done, and not until. When they finished their testimony, the beast rises up from the bottomless pit, will make war on the bottomless pit, make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, 
that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Where was that? Jerusalem. Okay, so we know that's where that was. So their bodies will be left to lie as rotting corpses in the street of the great city. We know it's Jerusalem due to the wickedness. It will be spiritually it's spiritually be called. Remember that? John makes that clear. I'm not literally calling it Sodom in Egypt. I'm spiritually calling it that because it has become so bad, it's just like Sodom in Egypt. The once holy city has become no better than these two cities. The same city that crucified Jesus, no doubt it's Jerusalem. The focal point also of the preaching, and it'll also be the focal point of the Antichrist. The whole world will see their bodies. Three and a half days it'll lay there. And it, they will not be moved. Why? So everybody can gloat and celebrate that they have been shut up of talking about God. And the world celebrates it. They, you remember that when, when Jesus talked about the, the people that were putting their fingers in their ears and grinding their teeth? They didn't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Shut up these preachers. We don't like what they say. They're calling us to repentance. They're saying we need to repent. They're saying the way we're living is wrong. They're saying God's judgment is coming, and we don't want to hear it. We want to do whatever we want to do, however we want to do it, and we are so thankful, not to God because we don't respect him, we're thankful for the beast. We're thankful that he finally has killed these two, and we're celebrating. We see that, don't we? We certainly see that going on. Ironically, this is the only revelation, you're going to love this, the only part of the revelation that we see where sinners are celebrating. They're usually in agony. Now we see the redeemed celebrating, but this is the only time we see sinners celebrating. And you know why they're celebrating? Because they love it. They love it. The resurrection of these two. Verses 11 and 12. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and, they, and great fear fell upon all who saw them. I bet it did. You think that was a big uh-oh? Think about what he just said. We're at the end of Scripture, okay? We're, this is the only revelation. Now I want you to think about this. What brought these two witnesses back to life? The breath of God. When did we first get introduced to the breath of God? Genesis. Remember my wife full of wisdom? Don't teach them the revelation until you've taught them Genesis. They can't understand the end if they don't understand the beginning. What did God do to bring Adam to life? His breath. What do we need? What did Jesus tell Nicodemus when he said, you must be born again? You need to be regenerated. Your spirit needs the breath of my Father, the Holy Spirit, to bring you back to life so that you're born Again, these two witnesses are destroyed by the beast. They're destroyed by evil. And God says, I bring them back to life. They, I can't be defeated. And those with me, though your body may die, 
your spirit will live forever. I bring you back to life. The resurrection of the dead. All that's right here. Praise his holy name. Now, when he brings them back to life, panic. Panic ensues. Can you imagine if some guys had been blowing fire out of their mouth and, and burning people up and, and the, the people just the, this disintegrating in front of them who oppose them? They, they, they stop the rain. They, they, they stop all that. They can do any. They're bringing down storms. Uh, we got an earthquake's about to happen again. And you think, whoo, we killed them. They, so all that's over. And then t- those two guys stand back up again. You're thinking, man, here comes the fire and here comes the storm. I mean, here they you think they were mad the first time. We just killed them. And now they're back again. And you know they had that power. And you thought you'd stopped it. And then they stand back up. And what about this? Can you imagine hearing God's voice saying, come up here? I can't believe that we're interpreting in the Bible, in the Revelation, the phrase, come up here. Y'all come back to me. And, uh, and God then raptures them. into heaven in front of the whole world. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine you walk in, there's all kinds of pandemonium going on in the world, and all of a sudden your wife says, hey, you come watch this on TV. You ain't going to believe this. There's, there's two guys that have been preaching in Jerusalem, and they just killed them, and they just stood back up. Can you imagine that? And then all of a sudden they just went up into the air. And some voice, somebody, the voice cried out, come up here, and they're gone. And it says the whole world sees it. The impact of this, verse 13 and 14. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and the tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people, hang on to that, were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God, the God of heaven. 7,000 people. Now, people here in the Greek is a name that's usually used when you're specifying names of men. It's, it's, a, little more, it's a little more personal than just a sea of people. So a lot of commentaries, I know that one that I read from MacArthur seems to suggest, and I think he makes a good point, since, since this, this Greek word is being used, likely these 7,000 that God kills after he pulls the two witnesses back, they're not just random people. I, John is trying to let us know they were some very powerful names that were still opposing him. He handpicked 7,000 of them and wiped them out. These were specific people that probably had power during this time, probably very, very powerful people who opposed him with the Antichrist, and God killed them to show that they didn't have power over him. You know, you know what do they always say? If you want people to panic that are in some sort of military war, what do you do? Take out the leaders. Take out those that are directing all of it, and suddenly it's chaos because they have no leadership now. So there's, there's some strong um, opinions that this, these could have been 7,000 powerful people. And then when you see them go, i got to give credit to the rest of them. Now, I don't know how they've waited this long, but apparently this scene is what they needed. And now they're like, hey, we're in. We are in. We used to, we used to call this submission, and, and it's 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 not a good story, but back before Jesus, uh, I would find myself at times in trouble with law enforcement. And 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 I remember we used to call this, "Y'all come on out, they got us." Okay, and that's when we realized that the situation had gotten dire, 
and they had the upper hand, and our best move now was just to submit, and and somebody in the group would say, y'all come on out, they got us. And 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 I think what's happening here is these people after seeing that are going, hey, let's repent, they got us. Okay, I mean, we got, we've seen all we need to see. We don't have the upper hand here, and the ultimate authority, we've just watched him, and so we're going to start glorifying him. We're going to start praising him. Uh, and And many believe that this is – that remnant that God was talking about of the Hebrews that come to faith. Glory to God of heaven is always a marker in Scripture of repentance. We saw it back in Revelation in chapter 4, verse 9. We're going to see it ahead in 14, 7, 16, 9, 19, 7. You're going to see this. Glory to God of heaven. Luke talks about this in Luke 17, 18, and 19. Uh, Romans 4, 20. So it, it, it means that, that, that when you see this phrase being used right here, that they repented. Okay, the Bible always uses it. Every time that phrase is used, used it represents repentance. So, so there is some wake up. But then there's those that still don't. Now for the unrepentant, bad news. Bad news. And it comes next. Verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The third woe, of course, will be the seventh trumpet. It is coming quickly, and it will be the final and the worst judgment yet. And it will go over months, leading to the end of it all, and that is Jesus once and for all, destroying Satan, all supernaturally and human that are with him. So if you've gotten to this point, you've gone through all this, and you're still there, a warning comes from John that though this is finally ended, the worst is yet to come. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today, and thank you for the message, and thank you for the hope we find, and and that we can, we still have time to repent. Um, you are kind enough to show us what is coming. You're you're even showing once again, as we've seen in all the visions that you gave John. Yes, your wrath is underway. We see that clearly, but your your grace and mercy, you still see it in the middle of all this. That you that you love us enough to give us our best shot. And, uh, Lord, uh, for those who will continue to reject you, uh, they can never say uh, that you did not reveal yourself to them. I pray, Lord, that you uh, continue to refine us into the people that only you can, preparing us uh, for our earthly death, that we hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. May that be the, the goal, not to earn our salvation, but as a response to your salvation. Uh, may we sit here today and evaluate ourselves. Does this mean anything to me? Is this doing anything to convict me of the sin in my life that needs to be removed? Is it doing anything to motivate that maybe advancing your kingdom and my sanctification should move to the forefront of my life as opposed to something that I get to if there's nothing more important happening? Lord, I know that I had to come to the conclusion that the reason why I didn't know your word and the reason why I didn't love your word 
was because I had never deemed it of any value. I repent of that, Lord. And now that I have tasted your word and I have gotten closer to you, I feel so embarrassed about how I ever had you in any other place in my life than the center of it. Thank you, Lord, for the grace and mercy that you've shown me and forgive me for either rejecting it or treating it with so little value. Lord, I pray that all across this room and all across this country and around the world, people are assessing themselves the same way that I have to assess myself. And may you bring conviction and clarity to all who repent. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you very much, guys. We'll join you next week, Lord willing.